How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. What is real is at the core of magic. Because when you see a magic trick, you often think, well, how could you have done that? My name is Joshua J, and I've been obsessed with magic since I was seven years old. It's all I've ever done. And now I'm here to share with you how magicians think. This is my This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is planning to ramp up its efforts to force Trump administration officials to comply with its subpoenas as the former president attempts to stop the inquiry. Committee members indicated that the U.S. Marshals have been contacted and told to prepare to apprehend those charged with criminal contempt as early as Friday. We're not messing around. Uh, If people don't show up, if people don't provide the documents they're compelled to, uh, we intend to take up criminal contempt uh, and refer to the Justice Department, and we expect uh, that it will be prosecuted. So we intend to move quickly. So get ready to go to prison, fellas, because lawmakers who sit on the panel said that they are prepared to pursue criminal charges against witnesses like Stephen K. Bannon, who have balked at cooperating. And the committee subpoenaed Jeffrey Clark on Wednesday, the Trump Justice Department official who sought to deploy department resources to support former President Donald Trump's false claims of massive voting fraud in the 2020 election. The House committee investigating the January 6th riot and insurrection is intensifying its focus on the previous White House with a new subpoena targeting a former DOJ official under Trump who was reportedly involved in the former president's robust effort to overturn our election. Former acting assistant attorney general Jeffrey Clark reportedly played a key role in Trump's campaign to amplify the big lies about voter fraud. Clark and Trump were reported to have been in contact during the days before the Capitol attack. Clark is considered a key witness for the panel, which is looking into the nefarious plot to overturn election results and interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. Clark, the former acting head of the DOJ's civil division, emerged as a key player in Trump's push to amplify his voter fraud claims after it was reported that the two men were in close touch in the days leading up to the January 6th attack which was the most serious attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812. Clark was also said to have pushed Trump's claims within the Department of Justice and indeed clashed with higher-ups. Clark authored and circulated a draft letter dated December 28th addressed to Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, Republican, that urged officials in the state to investigate unfounded claims of fraud. The Washington Post has previously reported that in early January, Trump entertained a plan to oust acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and replace him with Clark, who was open to pursuing Trump's attempts to overturn the election results. The subpoena letter to Clark says this in part, quote, the select committee's investigation has revealed credible evidence that you attempted to involve the Department of Justice in efforts to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power. As a result of your efforts to prompt this departmental action, the president considered installing you 
as acting attorney general. The statement then elaborated on why it wanted Clark to testify. Mr. Clark proposed delivery of a letter to state legislators in Georgia and others encouraging to delay certification of election results. Moreover, he recommended holding a press conference announcing that the department was investigating allegations of voter fraud despite the lack of evidence that such fraud was present. Both proposals were rejected by department senior leadership for lacking a factual basis and being inconsistent with the department's institutional role, the committee said. The subpoena requires Mr. Clark to produce records and testify at a deposition on October 29th of 2021. This was a mini attempted coup d'etat within the Department of Justice against the Attorney General. And it seems unlikely that this character, Jeffrey Clark, came up with this on his own. Trump has urged his former aides not to cooperate with the committee and is asserting a claim of executive privilege to prevent the release of records from the National Archives after the Biden administration last week said it will not stand in the way of the information's release. If witnesses do not show up, uh, we will hold them in criminal contempt. We will vote them in contempt in the House and we refer them for prosecution. I'm advising the deployment of the full panoply of enforcement powers at the disposal of the United States Congress. That includes criminal contempt powers, civil contempt powers, the people govern here, and no one is above the law. Not a president, not a former president, not the political cronies of the former president. A lawyer for Bannon said Wednesday that the committee's public statements about his client were not productive. Bannon has provided testimony to investigators in past cases where Trump waived executive privilege. Their press releases about Steve Bannon are just bluster, said Robert Costello, Bannon's lawyer. Costello said he has reached out to Trump attorney Justin Clark to ask for details of Trump's position on invoking privilege, but he said Clark has not responded. In a letter last week, Costello informed the panel that Bannon will adhere to the former president's directive to not comply with the committee's requests. We will comply with the directions of the courts when and if they rule on these claims of both executive and attorney-client privileges, wrote Costello. Since these privileges belong to President Trump and not Mr. Bannon, until these issues are resolved, Mr. Bannon is legally unable to comply with your subpoena request for documents and testimony. Bannon was subpoenaed last month along with Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, and Cash Patel. Of the four, Bannon is the only one who was not part of the administration on January 6th. He left his job as a top White House advisor to Trump in 2017. Most legal experts question whether executive privilege could shield Bannon from responding to requests for information about what happened during a period when he was not a White House employee. Steve Bannon hasn't worked for, didn't work in the White House for almost three years. Right. Okay. So it seems to me that the executive privilege on that is 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 very hard to defend. I, I don't think he's got much of a case. So what happens next? Does this go to court? Um, they arrest him. Uh, grand jury indicts him. What 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 is the process? So my, you know, the, the Justice Department's view, of course, of course, in any prosecution, is well, we'll take it case by case. If I had to guess, strictly a guess, I would think this is pretty good likelihood that the Justice Department, in fact, will file charges. In the subpoena sent last month, the committee said it expected Bannon and Patel to sit for interviews with the committee Thursday and Meadows and Scavino to do the same on Friday. 
Democrat-led congressional inquiries into the Trump administration were often frustrated by legal battles over how much a sitting president and his aides had to comply with the inquiries due to issues of executive privilege and separation of powers. But Schiff and others connected to the inquiry said they believe they now have a much better chance at forcing compliance with Trump out of office because they expect the Biden Justice Department will help them take action against people who do not cooperate with the inquiry. You know, part of the reason why some of these witnesses feel they can thumb their nose uh, at Congress and at uh, the power of the subpoena is for four years, that's exactly what they did. Uh, and they had an attorney general in Bill Barr uh, who would not enforce the subpoenas because anyone covering up for the president uh, was doing Bill Barr and the president's work and they were not about to hold them accountable. But that is a very different situation than today. Uh, today we have an attorney general that respects the rule of law, who upholds the principle no one is above the law. Uh, and we expect uh, those subpoenas to be enforced. With a new attorney general, Merrick Garland, in charge, hopefully things have changed. The department has indicated its interest in pursuing the January 6th inquiry and cooperating with investigators. Details of Clark's dealings with Trump were uncovered thanks to cooperation from the department, which helped pave the way for some former top Trump department officials to testify. While lawmakers have said publicly that the committee is prepared to pursue criminal charges for non-compliant witnesses, Members are now making it clear that a referral to the Department of Justice will almost certainly come quickly if they do not get the level of cooperation they are looking for. Congress, if they are really serious about this criminal contempt of court, if they're serious about, like, I think it's $100,000, up to $100,000 that they can be charged, um, then they're going to have to seem more serious than they are right now. We've already passed the date in which, you know, they could, they were told to give the documents. You look at Steve Bannon, his lawyer said he wasn't doing it, you know, and so then do something about it. I think that's something we're hearing um, from Democrats is they're getting a little frustrated that it seems like the committee isn't putting putting the hammer down and having wanting Billy right. Thompson to do make it very clear that you can't do this to Congress. With time on the clock ticking down to zero, the committee must hand over those witnesses who refused to appear to the U.S. Marshals for criminal contempt charges. Action must be taken now, or the Dems run the risk of looking toothless with their threats as Trump and his cronies continue to thumb their noses at the law and run out the clock with baseless lawsuits. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa, Norm Eisen, has been extremely busy lately laying the groundwork for Donald Trump's possible criminal indictment for his attempt to overturn the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. Eisen penned a widely read Brookings Institute report outlining Trump's and his allies' efforts to pressure Georgia's officials to change the lawful outcome of the election, concluding that the 45th president could be charged with multiple crimes. Among the charges, the exhaustive 109-page report recommends including criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, intentional interference with performance of election duties, conspiracy to commit election fraud, 
criminal solicitation, and state RICO violations, in addition to violations of more than a dozen other Georgia state statutes. We conclude that Trump's post-election conduct in Georgia leaves him at substantial risk of possible state charges predicated on multiple crimes, the report states. From your lips to God's ears, I hope this happens, but only time will tell. In the meantime, Eisen, a return guest to Maya Culpa, joins us during an extraordinary moment of true constitutional crisis as Trump urges his inner circle to defy congressional subpoenas and the Senate Judiciary Committee outlines the true scope of Trump's attempted coup. So let's listen now to that conversation. All right, so Norman, your report, written for the Brookings Institute, illustrates the criminal liability facing Donald Trump for his attempts to overturn the election in Georgia. Now, if you would, for the benefit of my listeners, can you take me through the report in terms of the various laws that you believe were broken by Trump and what the pathway is to prosecution? I'm glad to, Michael. I should preface by saying uh, that our report focuses on the potential risk, and it is substantial risk of prosecution. We, we leave the question of whether the laws were broken or not to the prosecutor, because as you know well, we don't have the all the evidence. We identify the areas of greatest risk. We identify the evidence that creates that substantial risk. And we'll see where the Georgia DA, uh, Fulton County's Fannie Willis, goes with this. We, And I'll talk to you about not only the legal aspects, but the kind of procedural and practical ones that lead me to and my distinguished and bipartisan co-authors talk about them too. the conclusion that there's substantial risk. Let me say first, credit where credit is due, that um, one of the first, maybe the first person to warn me of what was coming in 2020 and that Donald Trump would never leave office voluntarily was none other than um, uh, our uh, podcast host, the mea culpa Nick in chief, uh, Michael Cohen. <laughs> and Michael, when I came to New York and I interviewed you as really at the beginning of the impeachment investigation, I write about it in my book about the impeachment, A Case for the American People, meeting Michael and uh, discovering uh, an individual who's so uncommon. And, you know, Michael, our society has lost so much of its ability to forgive, but gen genuinely remorseful, recognize what you had done wrong and wanted to make things right, including by sharing this central truth that will frame this podcast, certainly that framed our report on the Georgia investigation, that there was no way Donald Trump was going to leave the White House of his own volition. And just this week, we saw how he had to be pushed out, um, including by his closest allies. So turning to the report and recapping it for the listeners, uh, and you can find the report on the Brookings Institution uh, website, including on if you look for my, my name, my expert page on our website, the report is linked there. And if the report is too long for you to read, there's a nice uh, little over a thousand word summary and an editorial op-ed that I wrote for the Washington Post 
myself, uh, my GOP co-author, Don Ayer, who held senior positions in DOJ under the Reagan and Bush administrations, uh, uh, my wonderful um, uh, uh, former DA co-author, uh, Gwen Keyes Fleming. Uh, she was a DA right next door to Fulton County. Uh, so she knows the Georgia landscape and the brilliant constitutional scholar Don Joshua Matz among the co-authors of this report we wrote for the for the post. What do we say? In the United States of America, no one, not even a president, especially not a president, can call a uh, state election official uh, or a series of them uh, and say, as uh, Donald Trump did to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, the most senior election official in Georgia, just, quote, find 11,780 votes. That is one more vote than Donald Trump needed to win the election in Georgia. And that demand, and much, much more like it, that we document in the report, 107 pages long, that demand raises the most serious issues under Georgia statutes, including, to take one example, solicitation of election fraud. You can't ask an election official to find over 11,000 votes if you're a candidate that don't exist. It's a solicitation of election fraud. And we all heard that tape, Raffensperger and his crew telling Donald Trump uh, uh, that they can't do that. But Trump pushing and pushing and pushing. And was when it was clear that he didn't get the answer that he wanted. And you know this well about him, Michael. Threatening. Threatening. And the threat was uh, to lay out the legal liability, a barely veiled threat against Raffensperger and his colleague if they didn't do what Trump wanted. Now, all of this is in the news this week. So that's what the report does. It goes through all of the different. There are dozens of uh, literally dozens of potential laws that are implicated. The most important are solicitation of election fraud um, and uh, RICO. The Racketeer uh, Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act of the state of Georgia, which basically provides when you have a group of people who get together uh, to uh, break the law and they have two, two other violations of Georgia laws like that, uh, like that uh, 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 solicitation of election. Uh, fraud, except there's a set of specific laws. We explain how they might be implicated. That kind of a conspiracy itself violates this RICO law with very serious penalties. So that's what we explain in the report, over 100 pages, and then the shorter Washington Post summary. So there's a lot to unpack in that. First of all, let me begin by saying, and this is something else that when you and I met for the very first time, you were working at the time for um, Jerry Nadler, for Congressman Nadler, um, and I believe that was the House, Ju the House, Senate Ju Judiciary, House Committee. Judiciary Committee. I apologize. House Judiciary Committee. Look, I'm getting old. Don't My mind worry about wanders. it. I can't remember and people's I, names. I cannot remember people's names. And I names. remember... <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm Michael. But here's the scenario. You may remember I said to you from the very beginning, and I say it a lot on mea culpa, but I just don't think it gets through people's um, heads enough. Donald Trump does not want to be president of the United States of America. He wants to be a dictator, a monarch, right? Um, a king. He wants to be a supreme leader, which is why he tried to copy Kim Jong-un with the military parade. That's what he wants. He wants he wants everybody's attention, affection, idolization, whether you want to or not, simply like what goes on in North Korea. If Kim Jong-un finishes a hamburger, everybody's lined up outside applauding and screaming and yelling. You would think that he just invented the cure for cancer. And that's what Donald Trump wants. And people need to understand this. 2024, though I say it all the time, Donald Trump is not going to run. He's going to run the clock all uh-huh. the way to the end and then say America doesn't deserve him, that it's put too much pressure on him and his family, that the Democrats are all... Trust me, it's exactly like the letter that I have that he wrote. Well, I really wrote it. He just signed it uh, in 2011 when he decided not to run. It's identical to that. He's going to grift off of this now for another two and a half years, and he's going to ultimately bail. But one of the things that I want to say is where are the indictments then? You know, I've said this to a couple of different prosecutors, to a couple of different people. You don't need to kill 10 people in order to be a murderer. Donald Trump does not have to be charged for every single crime that he has committed. Bank fraud, wire fraud, money laundering. You have RICO, you have uh, misrepresentation to banks, you have all sorts of viol- campaign finance violations. You have um, the now with Georgia and other states. So my question is, where the hell are the indictments? What the fuck is wrong with these? I don't understand. You have prosecutors who, when it came to me, came down on me with an anvil to my head by threatening my wife. What's wrong with going after Trump here? Do we use the F word on this podcast? I use it. I use it every day. That's one thing I haven't forgotten. Uh, I'll <laughs> use my Yiddish curses on this podcast with you. I have good ones. Growing up in a Yiddish-speaking home, Michael, here's what's happening with these prosecutors. The story starts with the tragic tale of Bob Mueller, who believed, I'm certain, concluded, if you know how to read his report, that Donald Trump should have been charged on at least five counts of obstruction of justice, a more severe hit than the one you took, but decided Two things, and it summarizes to answer your question where you where the prosecutors, but there's a happy exception, which I believe is the Georgia DA, DA uh, Willis. You know, they they are uh, that Mueller said, well, DOJ rules, I can't charge a sitting president. And it would be unfair to say he should be charged after he leaves office. So it was a one-two punch of prosecutorial discretion, caution. You know, ours is a country, I think they're making a terrible mistake. I, I agree with you that there we need to have more prosecutorial boldness in enforcing the law. But, you know, ours is a country where there's a longstanding norm that leans against charging a defeated political candidate because it looks like retaliation. Now, look, 
Even Ford sacrificed his own political career to remove Nixon from being charged, Michael. That is why Ford lost to Carter. So we still see that today. The DOJ is being very timid. I don't think DOJ is going to charge Trump until the 1-6 committee makes a criminal referral. So where does that leave us uh, in New York state? You know, there continues to be an investigation. And again, you were the first to really to publicize this when you testified right before I got rolling in the impeachment, you testified in Elijah Cummings oversight committee. And one of the things that you said to the country was this guy is a serial tax bank and insurance fraudster. And you brought the receipts, right? You put the documents out there for everybody to see. Also campaign fraud because you put up the signed checks for the Stormy Daniels repayments. You You know, Norm, one of the things that I decided to do because Trump was so effective in discrediting me, oh, he's a convicted liar, despite the fact that most people just (laughs) listen to the, you know, to the McDonald's uh, theme song, right? Or this this new um, (laughs) this this new Applebee's song. But one of the things that bothers me is that what I was convicted of lying was for the benefit and at the direction of Donald J. Trump. There was no benefit for me. And that's why that's why for me, it was so important that every single thing that we put up there, yeah, documented. which was part of my spirit, had to be documentary documented. evidence. Yeah. I don't want people to take my word for it. I want them to look for themselves, listen to the tapes, listen to or view the um, the slides that were put up there on the bank fraud, the wire fraud, the Stormy Daniels check payments and so on. Tax fraud. You also pointed out, I think, the different valuations. So where does that leave us? DOJ, DOJ is the Federal Department of Justice is doing some good things. They're prosecuting Barrick, so he did not get a pass. They're going after Giuliani. He got raided. He's got a at high risk of prosecution. Um, the, uh, the state... Uh, of New York in the form of uh, the Manhattan DA and the AG going after uh, Weisselberg, the Trump organization. You know, it looks very much like Trump was the kingpin of a tax fraud outfit. So I don't think he's out of the woods in New York. The most immediate place, and that's why you were kind enough to invite me back on the podcast, the most immediate place where it's moving fast, where Trump is at risk, where just last week we had bombshell new relevant evidence from the Senate Judiciary Committee is in Georgia. Because when Trump did the things he did in Georgia, he called Georgia, he sent Juliana to Georgia, Mark Meadows' chief of staff was meddling in Georgia again and again and again. You know, that raises very substantial questions under Georgia law. And he doesn't get to do that just because he's president. It's not a part of his job to go to Georgia and rob banks, kidnap, do extortion, commit other crimes. Imagine shoplifting. Can he say, I was shoplifting because I'm president? He can't solicit election fraud either. And so the DA, again, I'm not reaching the conclusion not saying he violated the statute. I laid out the evidence with the co-authors. The DA will make that decision. She's moving, Michael. And uh, and this Senate Judiciary report from last week gives her even more evidence. So uh, that's where the- Speaking of evidence, Norm, 
Speaking of evidence, did you see the CNBC report um, entitled Trump hid over 70 million yes. in losses on his D.C. hotel? And that's coming from the House committee. Yes, report. the House oversight. I mean, it's really true. Right. From 2016 to 2020, you're talking about a four year period. You know, this guy, it's funny. He doesn't learn. He's so obstinate as a human being. He's so corrupt as a human being. Even while investigations are ongoing, they still continue to play games knowing that it's going to come out because he really, truly believes he's Teflon. Well, he, 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 he does have an incredible um, ability to dodge liability. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like it. And Michael, as you know, you know better than I, you work side by side with him. He's been doing this since the racial discrimination settlement with DOJ in the 1970s. What was that? 73, 74, uh, where they were racially discriminating and providing apartments. They made a settlement with DOJ, neither admit nor deny. Then, of course, they went out and uh, claimed innocence. Uh, Trump and his father, Fred. So the guy has an incredible gift. It's his greatest talent uh, is to dodge liability. But I think Georgia, you know, maybe New York, eventually the feds will look at and I've written and others have written uh, the potential federal offenses. Uh, Maybe the feds will eventually look at it. Um, But I think Georgia, he's at risk substantial risk. I think he's also at substantial risk here in New York. I don't think between uh, Cy Vance's office, the district attorney here in New York, and Tish James, uh, our attorney general, uh, I don't think that he escapes this. I don't think that the children escape it or Kushner. And I'm just waiting for those indictments to come down. And my hope- I'll ask you a question. I cut you off. Go ahead and finish, then I'll ask you a question. No, it's just I'm waiting for I'm just waiting for it, and I've continued to assist them uh, in answering questions because the biggest problem for all of these investigators is that the Trump organization, despite what people think, is really a very small, privately held mom-and-pop company, right? There aren't a lot of executives outside of the Trump last name that have access to Donald and to specific information. Maybe there's a dozen in total. Alan Weisselberg already indicted. Matt Calamari probably soon to be indicted. At least they brought his son down before the grand jury. Uh, The same with Jeff McConney, though he's not an executive. He was um, uh, assistant controller to Alan Weisselberg. So when you have somebody like myself who's able to draw them a roadmap, Right. It's like Dorothy going down the yellow brick road right to Oz's uh, doorstep. And that's what I've been able to provide them, along with a series of documents in order, again, to validate and to corroborate all of the information that I have provided to them. Yeah, that's what was so striking about that House oversight appearance that you made. And then uh, that's why I picked up the phone and said, hey, we're working on impeachment over here in the Judiciary Committee. Can I come talk to you? We, and we had a number of conversations, and that's how we became friends. Uh, you have the receipts, literally, in some cases. The thing I want to say about this is 
Nobody knows what the DA will do in New York, but people who have written off who say, oh, Trump is going to dodge accountability are making a big mistake in New York. There is a substantial risk. That doesn't mean he'll get charged. But Michael, when and it's because of the reason you say it's a small family business, very complicated structures and entities. It's, uh, you know, very messy uh, corporate um, entity chart. But uh, when you have a small business like that and it's it's rife, ridden, full of tax fraud. Right. It's all rotten like a like a uh, like a cancer running through the body, the corporate body. How can you say that the person who's at the head of that business, who's known as a micromanager, who's involved in every decision, is not aware of it just because he didn't use email? Look, the guy's like a mob boss. He doesn't use email, right? Um, Correct. So, you know, there's no documentary records, but he's at risk. Yes, he is. And remember something, too. I don't want my listeners to forget about this. Even though he has yet to be indicted, the district attorney's office has indicted his parent company, the Trump Organization. And that is, in essence, the same as indicting Donald Trump for the moment, because they are one in the same. But let me just move on for a second here, Norm. Last week saw the release of a bombshell report from the Senate Judiciary Committee outlining at least nine times Trump and his henchmen pressuring the DOJ to overturn the election. Now, this is what we had just finished talking about, which reminded me of this question. The details of which, to me, I consider to be breathtaking. And this follows on the heels of aggressive action taken by the January 6th committee to subpoena Trump's inner circle. Now, on one hand, I'm thrilled as it seems like we finally have the receipts in hand to stop this man once and for all. Yet, we have been here before with two impeachments, countless investigations, and Trump still not facing an iota of accountability for his actions except for, of course, the indictment of his parent eponymous company. What's different about this time that you think that we'll see something being done? Well, he's faced an iota of accountability, as you know, because we talked about it. As soon as literally the day we finished the impeachment uh, and the trial, I pivoted to doing my bit to with you and many others to argue to the American people if Congress won't convict him, you should. And he was thrown. It was a very close election. And one of the reasons that he was thrown out of office, that was accountability, was because the the country could see that he was a crook and they were revolted by it. Um, so but he has not faced dispositive civil, criminal or regulatory liability yet. You're right about that. What's different about Georgia is, A, you have a very powerful case under the law and the facts. And we explain why that is in our report. Going in depth, there's nothing else like it out there. It's over 100 pages, really deep dive. By the way, we also spend a lot of time on Trump's defenses. We don't pretend that he doesn't have defenses. He does. We analyze and we explain why they fail. Number two, you have a very determined DA. And just like Cy Vance decided, and it resulted in charges against the Trump organization and Weisselberg, 
And I agree with you, others to come, maybe including Trump. This DA, Fannie Willis, is very determined. And you know what she said, Michael? If you haven't heard it, you're going to love it. She says, I can't turn my back on anybody who commits a crime in my jurisdiction. What kind of justice would that be? So she's determined. She's moving. She's um, gathering documents. She's interviewing witnesses. All the things that we know are indicators of a possible prosecution. And that's why we looked in the report. Does this make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And so while we think there's a substantial risk of prosecution there, and I think that, you know, the uh, uh, the 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 stars are aligned differently in Georgia. I can't promise it, but I do predict it. I agree with you. I agree with you 100 percent. Now, I heard an interview with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, He believes that the central figure in all of this is Jeffrey Clark and how he became empowered to do what he did. He wonders how Clark came seemingly out of nowhere and almost single-handedly orchestrates a coup. That it stretches the bounds of credibility. More likely is that he put up to it and was provided with a blueprint for everyone to enact. Now, Clark has landed at some dark money shop after being bounced from justice. So someone is definitely paying for this guy. What are your thoughts about the money and the power behind Jeffrey Clark and the entire attempt to overturn the election, um, January 6th included? Well, we know that Jeffrey Clark was introduced to Donald Trump by a Pennsylvania... uh, Trump faction congressman, uh, Scott Perry. And uh, one of the things that um, this Senate Judiciary Committee report that was so important from last week, one of the things that it uh, points out, maybe the most important thing uh, in that report, well, The most important thing is what it says about the role of uh, the role of Donald Trump and Mark Meadows. But Sheldon Whitehouse is on that committee. And the, the other important thing besides that is it sheds a lot of new light on this DOJ lawyer. He was the acting head of the civil division of the Department of Justice who broke with almost everyone else, perhaps everyone else at DOJ, in his willingness to support a coup. That's what Trump wanted, just because he wanted to do it under cover of law. It was a, um, a law insurrection that Trump was trying to plan, using the law books to disguise. And Clark... That's why Clark was central to that. He was the he wrote a he wrote materials full of false statements, which he circulated in DOJ, factual and legal statements. And Michael, that's why last week I joined over two dozen ethics experts and former presidents of the D.C. bar and other dignitaries in calling for professional ethics investigation 
of Jeffrey Clark by the DC bar and by the Department of Justice. We wrote a big complaint against him. He must be investigated because uh, he was an enabler and uh, Congressman Perry made the connection. And Clark is still out there, right? He's gone unscathed. We can't have that. Can't have it. We have that every single day. Let me once again, some of my listeners don't like this, but I'm going to interject what happened to me for a moment. You're talking about going to the D.C. bar for Clark. What about when I went and others on my behalf, unbeknownst to me, filed complaints, formal complaints against that dipshit scumbag, Matt Gates, about what he had done, witness tampering, yes. obstruction of yes, justice in going family, after my family. Your family. That, that's right. And we went to the Florida Bar Association. All of a sudden, Sean Hannity tells him what to write as an apology and so on. And that's supposed to mitigate the facts. Yeah. So go ahead, commit your crime and then get up there and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The problem is that misinformation, disinformation is so prevalent right now that nobody knows really what to do with it. The false statements that fly, New York Post, for example, right? Um, you have Fox News. They're a center all under Rupert Murdoch. You know, there were these two journalists that just wrote about me the other day because I was having coffee with Kanye West. He called me up. He said, Michael, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm, uh, I'm going out for my walk. He goes, oh, uh, can I meet you? I hurt my back. I hurt my hip, you know, um, in the gym while on the treadmill. And so I was sitting down for a little bit, having a cup of coffee, and then I ended up continuing my walk. So this Francesca Bacardi and this Alex Heigl of the New York Post end up writing all of this bullshit. And then the best part is they claim that they reached out to my lawyer at 9.01 p.m. on a Friday night. He happens to be an observant Jew, but they didn't even try calling him. Or sending it to his personal email. They sent it to the help email on his law firm simply so that they can claim that they did an iota of what they're required to do in order to be fair and impartial. This is not right anymore. And that's why I'm calling for everybody. Step away from the New York Post. Step away from Fox News. If you're an advertiser, get the fuck away from them. This misinformation, disinformation is why people like Matt Gates. Why people like Clark are able to escape responsibility for their actions. Well, first of all, I thought the reason Kanye reached out to you was because he knows I'm a frequent guest on the show. And he says, I have some questions I want you to ask Norm for the next podcast. That's number one. Number two, you know, I, I, uh, I, I wouldn't take amiss the press coverage. I saw it on Twitter. I thought, oh, how nice that Michael and Kanye are having coffee together. So why not have coffee with Kanye? Number three, you identify, all kidding aside, you identify a very, very critical flaw that is so dangerous for American, for American democracy and, 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 and society and the future of our nation, nation which is the uh, corruption this MAGA faction that has crept into every part, including the media, uh, and they have no regard for, uh, you know, the, the big the tenet of MAGA is it's OK to lie. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think that's terribly dangerous. Michael, it was even in the Senate 
Judiciary Committee Minority Report. Did you see that minority report that they wrote to go with the majority report and the crazy things that they said? Uh, it was. This is the Senate. I'm getting my copy. This is the 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 Senate Judiciary Minority. They're some of the most distinguished people in the country. These senators. You just go to the table of contents. Trump did not exert improper influence on DOJ. He tried to bend DOJ to destabilize and overthrow an election nine times. Uh, his concerns centered on legitimate complaints and reports of crimes. There were no legitimate complaints. There were no reports of crimes, but that's what these people say. That's that's the distinguished senators. Look at how bad things have gotten. The big lie is everywhere, and it's a danger to our country. It is. It is. You know, moving forward, because we were talking about President Biden, and obviously, you know, President Biden's current approval rating is sitting at about 38%. And that's very troubling as far as I'm concerned because I think it should be higher. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with the misinformation, disinformation that everybody is seeing. You know, I've had multiple conversations with people with Afghanistan, whether it was a complete debacle or an actual success. Are you worried about the Democrats losing the House and Senate and what that means for these investigations? In addition... Do you fear a GOP-controlled House and Senate where Kevin McCarthy, the fucking dark overlord, right, is Speaker of the House, and then Donald Trump somehow is able to rule by fiat from Mar-a-Lago? Because this is a nightmare scenario in my book. Discuss this with me, if you would. I'll start with uh, Biden's approval rating. Um, The average on real clear politics, they include some polls that I don't particularly respect, but the average on real clear politics as we speak is 43.0 approved. And uh, with the disapprove, he's about nine points, eight and a half points underwater. Uh, no, let's see, nine and a half points underwater. Disapprove is uh, 52.5, seven, nine and a half. Yeah. So uh, I think it should be higher. I do think that um, I do think and it's dragged down by Rasmussen, which is not a good poll. They have him low. You know, it's dragged down by some of the partisan polls. Trafalgar, they have him low. The average is probably a little higher. The Reuters poll um, last week had him at 48, which is quite good. The Economist had him at 44, Politico 45, Kinnipiac, which is a good poll, but uh, that uh, it's a little bit of an older poll a few days before that. At 40, he might be ticking back up. The uh, So, you know, it's too soon to sound the alarm. Um, I, I, I do think that there is a danger whether Trump does it directly. Look, you know the guy better and you have a proven record of your predictions coming true, it sure looks like he's running to me. But whether he runs or he stays back at Mar-a-Lago and he's the puppet master, and maybe part of the reason that he feels, gee, do I really have to run, is because he sees the uh, how effectively now 
he is able to pull all the strings, right? He's brought them all to heel. McCarthy showed a blip of independence after January 6th. He called him out. Now McCarthy is uh, subservient, totally subservient. The majority of the caucus in both the House and the Senate are Trump's lapdogs. To me, the greatest danger, even greater than Trump himself running, is if one of those who embraces his ideology but is more clever, like a Tom Cotton or a Ted Cruz, if someone like that runs and Trump is the power behind the throne, rallying the populace, pushing Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates to be committee chairs or subcommittee heads in a Kevin McCarthy cold controlled House of Representatives, pushing Mitch McConnell aside and, you know, Cotton's in the White House. This is the nightmare scenario. I don't think it's going to come to pass. And uh, a Cruz or another Trump follower, Ron Johnson, is in charge of the Senate. That is the nightmare scenario. But I don't think it's going to happen. I do not think it is going to happen. And uh uh, it probably is a subject for another podcast why it's not going to happen. But I, you know, I think if we all join together and fight, we can prevent that from happening. The greatest danger is if um, the anti Trump pro democracy forces start sniping at each other. And we are seeing some of that. I, un- I understand that Biden's administration right now is seeing some very tough scenarios to handle. And I and I fully get that. Now, prior to this least this most recent um polling, he was sitting at around 53%. And again, I'm very critical of his administration where it's deserving. What I read that the findings which basically were generated from September 1st to September 17th, I think it was a Gallup poll, um was conducted right after uh, the U.S. evacuated the 125,000 uh, individuals from Afghanistan. Now, while I understand that they were exiting basically the nation, our country's longest war, and the Taliban immediately took over, a lot of people, and not to mention, of course, the suicide bomber that killed the 13 U.S. service members, these are all terrible things. But one thing we have to remember This is war. Getting in and getting out of war is the most dangerous part. And while my heart bleeds for the families of these 13 U.S. service members, again, this is war. And during the same period of time, COVID-19 took about a thousand lives. Yes. Right. And here's the thing that bothers me, too. So it's Afghanistan is one of the things that's bringing down Biden's polling numbers. Another thing, of course, is what's going on with the COVID um, infection rates. True. We have to remember, as I, I am and have always been a Democrat, all right, despite what people think and so on. I've always been. I worked in 1987, 88 for Congressman Joe Moakley. That's when I was I started, uh-huh. you know, my life as, as a Democrat. The thing people need to remember is why are we seeing 130,000 new hospitalizations per day? Why is this pandemic not under control? We have the vaccine. People are required to wear masks, right? Why? Because 80 million 
unvaccinated people in this country, for the most part, the vast majority are red state Republicans who also don't believe that masking is appropriate. They believe that they can tell a woman whether she can, you know, have a child or not, but they don't believe that you can tell them or their children to wear a mask so that we can get rid of not just the COVID-19, but the Delta variant, the mu variants and so on. So how can Joe Biden fight somebody who's sitting and listening to this orange crusted, bloviated, ignorant, arrogant asshole that refuses to get up there and say, I'm Donald Trump and I created the vaccine. All right. It was under my Operation Warp Speed. I want everyone to go in to take the vaccination today. But he won't do that because he wants people to die. He wants the country to crash and burn. So in that way, he can say, you see, if I was president, everything would be beautiful. It would be wonderful. Everything would be exactly the way we'd be the richest country in the world. Somebody get me a Diet Coke. I mean, this is this is what he's all about. He's all about bullshit, misdirection and misinformation. And it's scary. And we will never come out of this pandemic until the red state Republicans, these Trump supporters, anti-vaxxers start getting vaccinated. They, They are sabotaging helping to sabotage um, the success of the Biden presidency with their vaccine refusal. Um, uh, The New York Times just had a piece on how perhaps the single most important thing that can be done to um, make the Biden administration a success is to get us out of the pandemic. And um, I think that there's a other and ignorant reasons for refusing to get the vaccine. It's harmful politically, but Michael, they're putting their own lives at risk, which is bad enough. They're putting their families' lives at risk. They put us all at risk because if everybody got the vaccine, we would have herd immunity and we wouldn't have to worry about these Delta breakouts. So um, it's a terrible disservice to the country and You know, it shows that the harm that Trump does is not limited to political harms. He's causing a general deterioration. He's caused a general deterioration. And I don't know how we're going to get these people back into, uh, as my friend and colleague Jonathan Rausch calls it, the community of knowledge. They they have abandoned the uh, shared truths, empirical truths, moral truths that uh, kept us together as a country. Look, I had a lot of disagreements with Republicans, but I had agreements, too. When I was serving as ambassador, uh, some of the most conservative Republicans in Congress, Dan Burton, who, uh, you know, who I'd been on the opposite side of in the uh, Whitewater when my firm was representing witnesses in the Clinton administration, And Burton was uh, the persecutor of the Clintons. But he came to Prague and we agreed on a set of shared American commitments, particularly beyond the water's edge. Donald Trump has destroyed that. And instead of the rest of the Republican Party, supposedly the responsible adults turning on him and his closest followers, Matt Gaetz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tom Cotton, 
Ted Cruz. Josh Hawley, Josh Ted Hawley, Cruz, we, we Marco Rubio, yeah. blah, blah. We can't forget. We can't forget the, the list. Instead of turning on all of them, Michael, they've consolidated behind Trump. So that's what we're going to have to overcome. But we can overcome it. We can. Norm, let me tell you this. I believe... I believe that the reason that they're doing that, they think he's going to come back to power. They think he's going to be the monarch, the king, the supreme leader, like a Putin in Russia, and that they will ultimately be like the oligarch class. That's what they believe. But, you know, Norm, I wanted to ask you this. You were quoted recently in a really excellent article from Atlantic Monthly about the possibility of a repeat of January 6th in 2024. But you state, instead of the violence, though, it will be the prospect of a bloodless coup, that the GOP is well positioned to take over state houses and election boards and secretary of state seats enough to throw the next election into complete chaos. You said of this moment, and I quote, our democracy is in great peril today. Um, And then it turns around and says, Norm Eisen, a prominent Democratic lawyer who co-founded the nonpartisan uh, state United uh, Democracy Center. We're in a Weimar moment in America. If you would discuss with me what you meant here and what we can do to stop this from happening. We do have more than two years to stop it. What can we do? Um, Well, what I meant by Weimar moment, as you know, I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor and a Holocaust refugee. Uh, My mother and her family were trapped in Europe and deported to Auschwitz. My mother was in a series of uh, concentration camps before being liberated. And my father got out and came to the United States in 1940, last boat made his way across Europe to Greece, and he got the last boat that left Greece before the shooting war erupted on uh, Greek soil. Nineteen, He got out in April of 1940. So I'm acutely aware of, and I've written in my book, The Last Palace, about, about the, um, the uh, run-up to World War II. Weimar, of course, was the tottering German government uh, that was um, the 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 failures of which um, set up a Hitler's ascension to power in the early 30s. The and what I mean is that um, that dangerous moment, 1932, 1933, when the the worst. Uh, outcomes could have still been forestalled if only everyone in Germany had seen what lay ahead, that we're in a similarly dangerous moment. Now, I want to be very clear. Do not think Trump is a Hitler figure. I think he is cut from the same cloth as the Hungarian illiberal leader, Viktor Orban, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Erdogan, the dictator of Turkey, Putin, those kinds of those kinds of figures um, are, are Trump's. And that's why he cozied up to them. This is our chance to avoid that. This is our 1932 when history can still be changed. I've written a long here for those uh, who haven't. Uh, seen it, uh, a long paper on what we must do called 
the democracy playbook, preventing and reversing democratic backsliding. It's not a partisan document. On the contrary, it, uh, it says that those of all parties must come together. The number one lesson, and the thing is, has got hundreds of uh, lessons and it's documented, it's almost 100 pages long, it's all documented by the social science proof of the post-Cold War period. How do you prevent this from happening? Coalitions. We just saw one in the city you were claimed to have visited, but never actually did Prague. Uh, that was a crazy oh. thing. That was a crazy thing. And but everybody, everybody went along with that lie. They kept promoting it. And well, promoting it and promoting because it because it created um, revenue for them. Yeah. It was a big topic, clickbaits, front page stories. Even after people, the FBI knew from day number two that in, it never in happened. In Prague, there was just an election, and a Trump like there are two Trump like figures who dominate. Uh, have dominated for several years Czech politics. One is the president. He's a European-style parliamentary president, he, you know, more of a figurehead. One is the prime minister. This prime minister was thrown out of office, and another group will come in because there was a coalition. There was unity, and that is the number one lesson. We need unity within the Democratic Party. We need unity between Democrats and Republicans, you mentioned my voting organization protecting elections and therefore our democracy, States United. My wonderful co-chair, Christy Whitman, has a brilliant piece up with anonymous Miles Taylor in the New York Times today about this importance of crossing party lines to unify in defense of democracy. And that's what it's going to take. We must stop sniping. We must make deals, we must compromise, we must link arms, and we have to join together against the threat of the Trump faction, the MAGA faction in American politics. Then let me ask you this. Ali Alexander, the leader of the Stop the Steal, claims that he worked closely with Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks of the House Freedom Caucus. In your mind... What's the smoking gun that will lead to accountability? Because I think that's what you're really referring to, is accountability for these rogue congressmen when it comes to Ali Alexander. Um, he's set to testify before the January 6th committee. What do you expect him to say? These individuals are, like Ali Alexander, uh, are a critical part of the run-up to January 6th and then the events of January 6th themselves. And um, I expect that he will talk about the organization connections, uh, that he'll testify truthfully if it's not just a uh, publicity stunt saying that he will and then he doesn't show up or like Lucy in the football. Um, uh, you know, who are some of these people? What were the connections to the White House? Who are these 11 others that the House has subpoenaed 11 of those involved in the Stop the Steal rally and others besides Ali Alexander, a total of 14 subpoenas. You know, who was who was talking to him? And the big question, Michael, what did the president know and do and not do and when? 
So it's an adaptation of Watergate. What were Ali Alexander's contacts with the White House, the people around the White House, members of Congress? Those are the kinds of things I expect he'll get asked. And we'll see what he says. Uh, He does not have a very good reputation for veracity. So we'll have to see if he if he actually shows up and cooperates. Okay, and I think that there's one additional aspect that uh, has to go on greater than just the president, where he was, who he spoke to, and so on. It's really, what's Merrick Garland going to do, right? Because he's been reluctant to step into the fray of January 6th. Do you expect that he'll aggressively enforce contempt of Congress charges and other referrals for those who defy subpoenas? Or actually, as you just said, since he has a problem with veracity, lie to Congress? What other steps can justice take to force accountability? Because we've seen no accountability so far. Well, uh, you know, um, the, 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 I'll, I'll politely beg to differ. We have seen accountability, mention this in passing. DOJ refused to immunize Mo Brooks, Congressman Mo Brooks, who spoke at the insurrection rally and then sought DOJ, hey, immunize me, defend me. This is a part of my duties. No, that was a very big deal because it suggests they won't immunize Donald Trump either. Number two, they're going after Trump cronies. They're, they've filed charges against Tom Barrick, the former chair of the um, inaugural presidential and old committee uh, and a very close Trump fundraiser and friend. The, they're investigating. They raided Rudy, Rudy Giuliani's premises. They're investigating Giuliani. I think they're staying away from Trump for the moment, it seems. I, what will it take? It will take a strong referral from the House 1-6 um, Select Committee to prosecute him. That's the kind of thing that will be needed. But I I think maybe uh, one of the things that has to happen first are these state prosecutions, possibly in Georgia, could be in New York. Um, That may break the ice. I and others have written a lot about the fact that DOJ should investigate Trump, starting with that obstruction of justice that Mueller found. Why should he get a pass on that? The federal campaign finance violations that you were prosecuted for, why he, he... Those were done at his direction. Why should he get a pass on that? But I think what it may take is, you know, the state's going first. So that's why I'm really emphasizing, including where we started the podcast with my Georgia report. I have one on New York, uh, possible New York tax fraud prosecution of Trump as well, that um, your listeners can find on the Uh, Brookings website. And uh, now we'll see what these prosecutors do, if anything. What's funny when you talk about the campaign finance, the fucking idiot is on tape, right? I mean, it's not as if that it's him directing me to do it. Well, look, I could sit and we could riff about it and we I will definitely have you back for more. But Norm, as we're approaching the hour, I have one last question for you. And it's about something that you recently did. Last week, your organization filed charges against John Eastman, whose infamous memo attempted to give Vice President Pence the justification that he needed to overturn the election. 
Can you give my listeners the basic gist of what that memo contemplated and what kind of accountability are you seeking from Eastman? Of course. Uh, I was uh, privileged and our States United um, organization uh, helped lead with alerting the California bar filing a complaint that there was a substantial evidence meriting an investigation uh, of Eastman. Let me just take a minute to explain who he is. We've talked a lot about Jeff Clark, who was the Trump insurrection lawyer, the coup lawyer within DOJ. Eastman was the uh, lawyer whose uh, representation of Trump perhaps did the most, certainly did a great deal to instigate this uh, coup under cover of law that Trump attempted outside. Very distinguished, former dean, a Supreme Court clerk, conservative legal scholar. And um, his role has really come to the fore. He's uh, recently, including because of revelations in the Woodward Costa book, Peril, and then a, a memo that Eastman himself released uh, that has been reported by some as a uh, six six point memo facilitating uh, a possible coup by Trump. Eastman's the one who sat with Trump and Pence and Trump tried to use him as part of Trump's effort to persuade Pence to overthrow the legitimate election results. Uh, on January 6th. So that's who Eastman is. And we said to the California bar, Eastman spoke at the 1-6 pre-insurrection tailgate, the infamous rally where Trump also spoke. Uh, and we said to the California bar, look, there's uh, a lot of very dubious factual and legal statements uh, in, in, in Eastman's writings in, uh, at that rally in his helping Trump. You can't help a client to do something that's wrong. You should take a look. Again, we're not making the judgment if he violated or not. He denies that he violated. He says these documents were drafts and he denies the characterization of his conversation with Trump and Pence. So we say to the California bar, look, the evidence is here. You decide, was this guy a coup lawyer or not. Uh, if he was, he should be disciplined. But that's up to you, California Bar. Substantial evidence to investigate. Yeah. Well, listen, Norm, I can't thank you enough for joining me once again on Mea Culpa. It's not just that you talk the talk, but you actually walk the walk in terms of filing actions in order to hold accountability to those who have broken the law. I should not be the only, look, I know what I did in certain respects. Um, some of the things that I had done, I knew was wrong and I took responsibility for it. Some of the things that I pled guilty to, I, they're just, I didn't do it, but because they held a gun to my wife's head and basically threatened the indictment, I had no choice. We talked about this uh, ad nauseum, but I took responsibility for what I did. Nobody else seems to want to take responsibility, not Meadows, not Hawley, not 
not any of them. I mean, it's I can go on for hours talking about which ones, McCarthy. None of them want to take Ted Cruz. None of them, you know, want to take response. Matt Gates. None of them want to take responsibility for any of the things that they have done. And what bothers me is that people like Mo Brooks are still in office, that people like Matt Gates get to sit there and ask questions to somebody like General Milley. That, to me, I found more offensive than anything. He should, they should not be allowed to sit on committee while they're under investigation, especially for an attempted coup. But you have put pen to paper, filed <laughs> lawsuits. You know, you're, you're preaching the truth of accountability as far as whether it's Brookings Institute, whether it's as a CNN analyst, as co-founder and the executive chair of, you know, um, States United Democracy Center. So thank you for everything that you're doing. You know, thank you for coming on the show again. There's so much more that we have to talk about. Uh, so I certainly will have you back. I, I look forward to it. Uh, and I thank you for owning up to your responsibility uh, for the um, uh, title of your program, Mea Culpa, and for not just saying Mea Culpa, but also how can I make things better? By continuing to shed light on this, by using your perch to talk about uh, the ongoing wrongs and how to fix them, you're doing a public service. Plus, you're my friend and I always enjoy hanging out with you. So thank, thank you. you, Norm. And I will see you again very soon. You Come soon, visit Michael. me in New York. Thanks. You got it. Bye-bye. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Norm Eisen today, I realized just how close we came to a stolen election. In recent weeks, the picture of Donald Trump's scheme to get the Justice Department to help him overturn the 2020 election has come significantly into focus. First came the disclosure that conservative lawyer John Eastman had authored a memo outlining the steps by which this would take place on January 6th. Then came a major report from the Senate Judiciary Committee detailing Trump's relentless pressure campaign on the Department of Justice to invalidate the election results. One thing has become pretty clear in recent weeks. This plot was foiled in large part because the Justice Department and Vice President Mike Pence opted not to go along with it. But what if they had? Or what if Trump had followed through on firing acting Attorney General Jeffrey A. Rosen and replacing him with the Justice Department official who was willing to do his bidding, Jeffrey Clark? This is the scenario that keeps me up at night in terror. The GOP has ransacked local and state governments of late and pushed through all manner of authoritarian legislation. They have engineered supermajorities for themselves through a system of gerrymandering that guarantees Republican majorities in states where they are, in fact, a minority. And now they are planting the seeds for the destruction of our electoral system by running MAGA candidates for Secretary of State positions all across the country. What if Brad Raffensperger hadn't been a man of integrity, but instead a fucking Trump-worshipping hack? The amount of chaos and doubt he could cause just by the simple recognition of Trump's lies is beyond destructive. We are headed towards a nightmare scenario where we get a repeat of January 6th, only the people guarding the Republic are all fucking Trump fanatics. This is the thought I cannot abide. 
but I fear that day may be on hand if we are not careful. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>